Welcome to OceanFit's Onshore Podcast, where Andre Slade, that's me, meets the unordinary people of the open water swimming and water safety community onshore to talk about their adventures, lifestyle and passion for the offshore. In this episode, I met up with Norm Farmer AM, a grand knight of the International Lifesaving Federation who has dedicated his entire career to national and international water safety. It's my honour today to be sitting with Norm Farmer AM, uh, awarded the AM just recently. Norm, that's a, a, a fantastic achievement and we're, we're going to find out, I guess, how that came to be. So congratulations for that. Thank you, Andre. Thank you. AM, that's a big title, but you've also got another title, a grand title. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, um... I'm a grand knight in the Order of Lifesaving, which was uh, uh, an award from the International Lifesaving Federation um, about 10 years ago. When I heard you'd become an AM, I thought, but how can you get greater than a grand knight? <laughs> well, it depends on the organisation. Um, you know, uh, my work with the International Lifesaving Federation, which goes back to 1994. Uh, and uh, so... Uh, uh, over a period of time and my service there, um, they decided that it was um, an honour that they would like to grant, and um, I gratefully received that. Tell me about the beginnings on the journey to becoming a Grand Knight in an AM. Where did it all start? Well, the start was with my mother and father, uh, Jack and Shirley Farmer. They were members of the Mento and Life Saving Club here in um, suburban Melbourne. And so I was born into life-saving, if you like, and so uh, I was um, uh, a nipper or a junior and then uh, uh, was there until I was about 14. Uh, the family moved to Mordialic, again on Port Phillip Bay, and so I went to school with um, some people in the Mordialic Life-saving Club and moved into the Mordialic Life-saving Club at first, more as an associate, um, just helping out at their Sunday night dance, and then I was um, uh, encouraged to become a, an active member, which I did. And so, then I spent um, 10, 15 years again, junior instructor, senior instructor, chief instructor, club secretary, club vice president, representative of the club on the state competition board then representative of the competition board on the state, state executive or the board, uh, and th this was with the Royal Life Saving Society in Victoria. Because the clubs on Port Phillip Bay um, were recognised as uh, uh, clubs with the Royal Life Saving Society, uh, as against clubs on the Ocean Coastline, which uh, were with Surf Life Saving Victoria. These days, those clubs are... They're all one, but they still have their own identity as well. Okay, so what happened is that uh, there was two state entities, Royal Life Saving Victoria and Surf Life Saving Victoria. And um, there was 28 clubs on Port Phillip Bay and there was 28 clubs on the Ocean Coastline. Interestingly, uh, Royal Life Saving Victoria started in 1904 but Surf Life Saving Victoria didn't start until 1947, some 43 years later. Uh, and so uh, 
again, there was quite a number of the surf clubs that were formed by people from Royal Life Saving Clubs and uh, um, some of the surf clubs belonged to Royal Life Saving Victoria in the early days. Anyway, in about the 1950s, there was an agreement between Royal Life Saving and Surf Life Saving nationally that Royal Life Saving would uh, focus on the inland waterways and Surf Life Saving would focus on the ocean coastline. Port Phillip Bay was classed as an inland waterway and therefore the clubs in Victoria on Port Phillip Bay remained with Royal Life Saving. In 1986, the South Melbourne Life Saving Club thought, well, we would like to um, be involved in some of the surf competitions and surf events on the ocean coastline and also participate in the Surf Life Saving uh, Australian Championships, the Aussies. And so in 86, 1986, and over a period of uh, 14 years, there were um, 11 Royal Life Saving Clubs that moved into uh, uh, what we called dual affiliation. Uh, they had affiliation with Royal Life Saving Victoria and also Surf Life Saving Victoria, which then opened up a range of discussions. It was an interesting time. And am I correct in saying that the, the government ended up pushing the, the final decision for them to morph into, into life-saving Victoria? No, not at all. Um, in fact, the government certainly encouraged, but the government took the view that we can't force two not-for-profit independent organisations into doing anything. We can encourage and... and uh, um, through a range of ways, uh, uh, funding is one. But from my perspective, uh, uh, in the uh, about the year two thousand, surf life saving and royal life saving in Victoria basically started talking to each other. And for me, there were probably around four or five key reasons why the merger of royal life saving and surf life saving in Victoria came about. One was the dual affiliation of clubs. Secondly, there was um, a growing trend to have life-saving recognised as an emergency services. And so instead of maybe just being linked to the Department of Sport, the move from Department of Sport to Department of Emergency Services within the Victorian government, when I say move, it was recognition, not to be subsumed by those departments. Also, uh, both organisations were receiving contact from school saying, you just visited us yesterday. Why are you coming back again today? So what ended up happening is that we were visiting similar clients. And another reason was in the sort of mid to late 1990s, there was a move to uh, get more involved in vocational education and training. One was for standards of education, but secondly, it was also an opportunity to raise money, uh, sorry, raise money, raise funds to actually help operate our respective organisations and to cross-subsidise, um, you know, from uh, a paid service and help our volunteers uh, um, in a financial sense. 
And so from my perspective, is that was those broad range of activities that led to discussions in about the year 2000, 2001, where the organisation started to say, our members are saying, shouldn't be, we be one? So that, that then put in process a chain of events, a chain of meetings over a number of years, which ultimately led to the uh, creation of a, a, a a new company, Lyceum Victoria, uh, in 2002. And then, if you like, the the final uh, merger of all the activities in 2006. So that's an interesting history. Um, it is. And my personal belief is that model should be national. Is, do, you, do you think there's any movement or any interest in other states getting on board that particular model or maybe, you know, reducing duplication of reports and, and um, education. It's a, I know it's a political world out there, um, but, do you, but do you ultimately think that it would be a good place to go to or do you think it's, it's a, we're in a pretty good place? Out of those four or five drivers I mentioned is that it'd be fair to say a major one in Victoria was the clubs the 28 clubs that Royal Life Saving had and the 28 clubs that Surf Life Saving had and those 11 that were dual affiliated. And so that then became the um, a major catalyst because those members were saying that, why are we doing two lots of administration? So now we put that in the national context and then we start to say, well, how many other states have clubs in both organisations. Yeah, Royal Life Saving in Queensland has some clubs, not that many, certainly nowhere near 28. South Australia did have some some clubs that were belonged to Royal Life Saving, but again, not many. And so when you go around the country, is that uh, the life saving clubs, in other words, the provision of a volunteer service on a body of water, was very, very strong in Victoria and is not strong in other states. Duplication in terms of training, yeah, that's there. Um, education in schools, overlap, yeah, that's there. Duplication or overlap in sport, particularly in pool life-saving competition. Um, but at the end of the day, um, it's a, a decision for the states to make. Um and, uh, yeah, be fair to say I put my career on the line because I was chief executive of Royal Life Saving in Victoria at the time. And so, uh, um, but we did it for the right reasons. And it's really up to the other states to say what are the opportunities, what are the benefits, what are the benefits not just for myself, but what's the benefits for the community that we serve. And I think if they start to look at that, um, then a, they'll make the decision that's right for them. G'day, kia ora. I wanted to take a quick break to tell you about OceanFit. Back in 2009, OceanFit started as an ocean swim school on the golden sands of Bondi Beach. But now, we've become so much more. We deliver our world-leading training to hundreds of swimmers every summer on beaches throughout Australia and thousands learn from our free educational resources online. Our Swim Scout directory, available on our website and app, 
We'll help you find a swim buddy, connect with social swimming groups, and discover swim events throughout the country. You can also participate in one of our events. Escape with us on a wet and wild weekend, or immerse yourself on a boutique ocean swimming holiday at home or abroad. So what are you waiting for? Dive right in at oceanfit.com.au. Enjoy the rest of this episode and swim free. So when I first met you, Norm, was when I had taken a job at Surf Life Saving Australia. In fact, it was the reason I moved to Australia. I remember the first time meeting you, being in awe of how deep your involvement was, not just within Victoria, but nationally uh, and internationally. From those early beginnings in your club roles, which I remember having in my club, and which is why I just love the story of, of, of yours. Did you ever see yourself growing onto the international stage? Like, was that something you strive for, or do you just kind of fall into it? I think I probably fell into it. Um, and I suppose life is very much um, uh, what you choose, um, but also uh, what you put your hand up to do. And so when I was on the state executive for Royal Life Saving Victoria, we started to sort of help out um, or offer assistance to New Zealand and to Fiji. When I mentioned New Zealand, I mentioned Royal Life Saving in New Zealand because there is a Royal Life Saving in New Zealand and it has been for many, many years. Which is interesting because coming from there, I wouldn't have known that, being so deep in the surf side. Um, yeah, well, certainly back in the um, 80s, 70s and 80s, sorry, 1970s and 80s, uh, Royal uh, New Zealand was reasonably most strong. But then they made some uh, decisions and, and and there were some developments in other associations in, in New Zealand, such as the, the Water Safety Council, Surf New Zealand and uh, Swimming in New Zealand. And so I think they probably lost some of their uh, their connections about that time. But, uh, yeah, so it was probably late 1980s, early 1990s, that I started to get connected with um, the uh, uh, the international scene. Um, and because of my work with Royal Life Saving in Victoria, I became the national counsellor on the Royal Life Saving Society Australia. And so uh, through that connection, um, I became their director of sport. And then the Royal Life Saving Commonwealth asked me to, well, would you help write in some um, uh, Commonwealth Life Saving Championship rules and regulations? So I did that. And so uh, there was probably no coordinated connection internationally, but it was just uh, taking on these different roles. And, uh, yeah, so I think that then I just got to know people. Uh, people would ask for help. Um, I would then say, well, I may not be able to help you, but let me put you in touch with someone that can. And so I've spent a lot of the last 25 years sort of um, joining up people. Um, and the more you get to know, the more skills that, um, you know, certain people have, and then you can link those skills with people that need the skills. And you are the grand knight of that. <laughs> um, how... Some of your roles are volunteer and, and life-saving in general is a very volunteer-led 
um, organization and uh, especially in Australia and New Zealand and then some of your roles have been your job how, how do you balance the volunteer roles and the employment within the same industry uh, it's an interesting question Andre because uh, I became employed um, in lifesaving in 1992 where Royal Life in Victoria uh, decided to get involved in um, uh, managing a large aquatic centre. At the time, it was called the Dandenong Oasis. And so we uh, got involved in that. But the purpose of that was to improve the standards, the safety standards of lifeguarding and of um, swimming pool operation. Uh, And so... uh, we set up um, a, a, a division to manage that. Uh, we brought out someone from Canada who spent some time with us for two years, and then he went back to um, Ottawa in Canada. The position became vacant, and I applied for it and was successful. And so uh, I then spent probably the next 20-odd years working in life-saving with uh, the Royal Life Saving Victoria. Uh, I moved into the chief executive role, which I mentioned before, because uh, when I was chief executive when we created Lysane Victoria. Um, and then uh, I did some consultancy after Lysane Victoria for a couple of years. And uh, then Brett Williamson, who was chief executive of Surf Lysaving Australia, uh, um, uh, offered me a job at the National Office of Surf Lysaving Australia. Uh, and I started there in mid to late 2007 and worked at uh, the Surf Life Saving National Office until uh, uh, mid-2014. And it was during that time that we were uh, colleagues? That's right, yeah, an enjoyable time. Uh, we, we have very different styles, I must admit. You're a very calming, humble man, and I tend to be the agitator. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. We both got things done in our own way. Some of the projects that you worked on have become real foundations for what we're seeing now within the industry and really taking it from, if I can explain it, you know, a loose connection of policies and rules and, and things and really kind of tightening it up and almost being a futurist as well, to where we should be going? In about the mid-1990s, there was a movement. um, uh, Risk management just started to become, um, I suppose, uh, uh, a structured uh, principle. It had been used in finance, but now it's been expanded into uh, all operations, all business, all works, walks of life. Um, and I was on an Australian Standards Committee back in the sort of mid-1990s, early 1990s. And so I then saw an opportunity f- to expand uh, the guidelines for safe pool operation, which was uh, an initiative of Royal Life Saving in about 1990, 91, and, and was quite a rudimentary set. And so over in those mid-1990s, uh, I worked with the industry to expand those guidelines for safe pool operation. As I was doing that, um, 
uh, using some of the risk assessment principles that were being established, I thought, oh, I can turn these guidelines into a risk assessment uh, tool. And so uh, a good friend of mine said, um, my wife um, is out of work at the moment. And I then said, well, would she be able to turn these guidelines, every single guideline, into a question? And so she then spent um, uh, a few weeks typing all the, the guidelines into questions. And that was the first swimming pool risk assessment tool, I think, anywhere in the world. Um, well, it's come a long way since then. So what then happened is that um, when I was uh, asked to join Surf Lifesaving Australia at the national office, one of the major tasks was to enhance some of the risk management, risk assessment of the coast. And yes, there had been some prior work com completed in that area, but it wasn't necessarily structured in any way. So what I did was to look at um, the um, public safety and training manuals that Surf Life Saving had, some of the work that was going on overseas, and there was this gap in terms of, well, there's no guidance here in terms of how to provide uh, a guidance to the operators other than the training manuals. So over a period of six months, I was asked by Surf Life Saving Australia to help develop a set of guidelines for the coast. And so we did that. And, and so that was, um, I think, released in 2008. Um, probably not widely used, um, but it's there as a resource, as a reference text. And uh, uh, I think it was updated into a, um, a second volume. Uh, but uh, And it was at that time that um, myself and uh, Adam Weir, um, who's now the Chief Executive of Surf Life Saving Australia, um, and uh, a chap by the name of Steve Wills. Steve Wills was from the Royal National Lifeboat Institution in the UK. He came out on a six-month secondment. So the three of us got our heads around the table and we developed the uh, risk assessment tools for surf life saving, um, developed um, uh, an app to be used on iPhones and iPads. And again, that's grown from there. And so uh, uh, to see how the swimming pool standards and risk assessments have grown and the coast uh, assessments, um, it's wonderful to see how it's contributing to safety. Two of those names there, Adam Ware, the CEO of Surf Life Saving Australia, which I think his contract just got extended by three years. And Steve uh, from the RNLI, I caught up with him over summer. Uh, gee, he's just a mini you, isn't he? He just <laughs> travels around the world helping out smaller countries and communities with their water safety. You'd be somewhat of a mentor to them, uh, I'm sure. Does it, does it make you proud to see those the people that you work with get into those yeah, kind of Yeah, absolutely. I never saw myself as a mentor until probably recently when I look back. And so because I love operating in a team and building off the skills of the different members of a team. And so um, uh, I have had this saying for a while, I called uh, everybody matters. And so it's not norm, you know, it's it's if we can just harness the, the power of, uh, of everyone, um, 
boy, can we make a difference. And I think through some examples I've used, we have made a difference and we continue to make a difference for people that love to use the water for uh, recreation and fitness and sport. I remember fondly uh, um, some early work that you did with the Australian Lifeguard magazine where you um, were trying to produce a magazine that uh, promoted the work of uh, lifeguards around Australia. And not just the lifeguards with Surf Life Saving Australia, but uh, the lifeguards that uh, worked for local government and directly with local government and that uh, uh, I recall um, some early discussions within the organisation about, uh, you know, how do we promote that uh, uh, there are multiple lifeguard organisations that work uh, on the same thing but for different organisations. And I remember one of your early magazines where you interviewed some lifeguards uh, that uh, work with local government um, and were connected with the Apollo organisation. And I think most of those from memory uh, actually started their time in um, a surf lifesaving club. And so that uh, idea of collaboration uh, uh, really came forward in the, uh, around 2010, with your Australian Lifeguard magazine. And I think that was a great contributor at the time to actually help people learn that we're all in this together and that, uh, oh, I didn't know you did that. And so, yeah, the, the Australian Lifeguard magazine, I think, made a difference. I remember putting a lifeguard it was from Waverley Council at the time and I think Ramwick and the Sutherland Shire. It was one off, if not the first time, that a surf lifesaving publication had lifeguards with different uniform colours on it and there were definitely some words being said throughout the organisation about whether what that was about. It was breaking the barriers in those early days that, that needed to be done and I would hope from it now that, that organisations and lifeguards and lifesavers are working closer together. I believe that they are. I believe that the lifesavers and lifeguards and the lifeguards from different organisations do work cooperatively. And often we see that when we see a rescue on the media, when we see that um, uh, lifeguards and lifesavers have joined together to look for someone, to rescue someone, and that brings out the best in people because it's not the organisation that they're uh, worried about. It's the safety of their human life. It's using their skills and their training to actually save someone. Whether they've got a blue uniform or a white uniform or a red and yellow, they're focused on the one thing. I must admit I would like to see everyone in red and yellow because then it's easier to promote to the general public, the users of pools and beaches that, To find a lifeguard, you just look for the red and yellow. But that, at the end of the day, should not distinguish our humanitarian aims. It's what we believe we want to do 
to save someone's life. It makes me extremely happy when I hear a, a report on the news and it starts off with lifesavers and lifeguards were searching for someone or help rescue someone because before we really started working together, the lifesavers would say they were doing it and the lifeguards would say they were doing it and no one could put the two words together in one story, but really it was a combined effort. There are many organisations um, that provide safety and sometimes we become so entrenched in our own organisation, we forget that if we were to collaborate more and work together, then we will contribute to communities more, we will save more people, and that um, even in this country, there's multiple organisations doing similar things. You know, the lifeguards on the beaches, the lifesavers on the beaches um, belong to different organisations. We're all doing the same thing. We're all there for the same reasons. And that um, different organisations will continue to exist, not just Royal Eye Saving and Surf Life Saving or a polar or other private entities. And so for me, in recent years, I've probably got more involved in collaborating in trying to bring people together because there's so many reasons that tear us apart at times as communities and not just life-saving, but communities in general. And so I think if we spend more time thinking about how we can work together and collaborate and cooperate, I think the world would be a better place. If we look at the ILS, what are the current projects the ILS is working on that will make a difference? The International Life Saving Federation, or ILS, was, was formed in 1993, um, and that was, again, a merger of two organisations. And so over the last uh, 26 years or so, there, there's probably three major areas, possibly four, that the ILS uh, uh, focuses on. Uh, one is uh, they offer the Lifesaving World Championships every two years and they move that around the world. Uh, that's uh, The World Championships are held in the even-numbered years and in the odd-numbered years, every two years, is the World Conference on Drowning Prevention, again, which started in 2007 and which I was proud to say I had a uh, a leading role in that. And, and that has grown into a uh, most important activity to bring together researchers and practitioners uh, on water-related issues to try and improve what we do to save lives. Thirdly, the International Lifesaving Federation uh, has a set of international um, guidance on training um, particularly pool lifeguard, surf lifeguard, uh, inland water lifeguard, uh, uh, defibrillation, rescue boats. So they offer us, uh, you know, like a, a set of guidelines to which 
member countries can uh, uh, assess their own training. Uh, and fourthly, probably, which is the low key one, it's linking those countries that need help with countries that can offer help. And so you don't read much about that, but there's an awful lot of uh, great development that happens through exchange, exchange of ideas, exchange of people. One of those exchanges, I was uh, contracted by Surf Ice Saving Australia after my time there to work with the um, Saudi Arabian Swimming Federation, and you mentored me through that uh, that exchange. And so I went to Saudi Arabia. It was a, a very interesting uh, uh, time in my life. There are some very, even back then, it was, gee, it was still in maybe 2011, maybe. I just, it was, from my point of view, I, I went there thinking, what do you mean there's a country that doesn't really know what they're doing with water safety? But there are still lots of countries out there that it hasn't been a focus. They, for whatever reason, they just put up with drowning deaths or it's not the biggest priority because they've got much bigger things to worry about. Are we getting to a moment yet where most countries that have got some solid foundations in water safety? If we look at the number of countries in the world that are recognised by the United Nations, we are about two-thirds of the way there. So there's about 124, 130 countries that have a, a structured water safety, drowning prevention, life-saving uh, activity in some form. And so some of those were linked with the swimming federations. Most of them are separate, uh, but have um, an ad hoc arrangement um, or relationship. So we still have a long way to go. And some of it's based upon the economic circumstance of the country. Some of it's based upon the political. Um, and some of it's based upon that drowning may not be a large problem in a particular country. Therefore, uh, the focus is probably not on drowning prevention. Even though I would say those countries should be educating their population on how to be safe around water. And the water doesn't have to be the sea or a swimming pool. The water can be a well where a young child is exposed every day to an open well while the parents collect water for everyday use. And so uh, sometimes we just think about life-saving as a swimming pool or a river or the ocean, or a bay. But think about the toilet in the home. Think about the exposure in the bath, um, the, exposure in, the exposure to water in open wells. And so if we think broad, we have a need to educate a population in every country of the world. So we have a long way to go, but we've also done well along the way. Yeah, and Australia... People tend to drown doing recreational activities, like you were saying. They're, they're drowning because they're going swimming or they've had an injury surfing or boating. And I remember in Saudi Arabia, when I was doing some research for that project, it wouldn't rain that often, but when it did, big puddles turned up just in the, in the open landscape and people would drown in the puddles. 
And that was like my opening moment when I thought, gee, these people aren't drowning because they're doing something fun and it's a 25-year-old male who's pushing the limits. This is a little child just drowning in a puddle or falling down a well. So really the just even surviving in those third world countries where they're collecting water so that they can put it in a pot and cook dinner and people are drowning doing that. It's, it, it's, it's a tale of two worlds, isn't it? It is, and probably more people drown in the world through the day-to-day activities than they do through recreation. And so there's been some great work done in, in countries like Bangladesh and Vietnam where the drowning toll, particularly amongst children, is, is huge. I'm talking 10,000 a year or more in some countries. And there has been lots of work in the last 10 to 20 years in those countries, and it's starting to work. But there's a long way to go. And I think the important thing that we need to do, and I think you started to highlight it, um, and that is that we need to adapt to the local conditions. And what happens in Australia uh, is not the same that happens in Bangladesh or Vietnam or Philippines, what have you. And so a big learning for me has always been we can learn as much from those countries as we have to share. And so people that go into those exchange programs, like your trip to Saudi Arabia, is very much you walked away from that learning a lot and you shared a lot. And if we put that into everything that we do in life saving, I think the world would be a better place. And you say that this is something you've been doing for the last few years, but really it's been the defining part of your career, really bringing people together, building the network, joining the dots, breaking down the barriers and making sure that that everyone, no matter where you live, how much you earn, what your interests are, that you are safe in water. Yeah, and a defining moment for me was in about 1991 at the centenary of the Royal Isam Society worldwide. I met a, a man, um, uh, his name was Jerome from Uganda, and we were talking just one-on-one about water safety and what have you, and and he said, um, he said, Norm, yeah, my kids, um, I teach them water safety. But to get to school every day, they have to cross a creek that the greatest risk is crocodiles. And for me, it was the defining moment that um, the world is an amazing place. We all have different needs. We all have different fears. We all have different needs to live. And, And so that comment from Jerome will stay with me all my life and that we're all in this together. And he can help me learn, and I can help him learn. One example of how things are done differently, we have a, a friend in common, uh, Mr. Doug Ferguson, who's, I might get his title wrong, but he would be the 
president of something over in Canada. He's, he's definitely on the ILS with you. Um, when I go for a swim at the beaches in Toronto, uh, flat water, I walk into the water knee deep. One of their lifeguards gets in a rowboat, rows out, and just sits there about a metre, two metres away from me, just watches me. It's a very, very different type of lifeguarding. What are some of the most interesting ways you've seen lifeguarding performed in your travels? That's an interesting question because the variation um, uh, has been massive and still remains to be massive. Um, Open beach lifeguarding that you'll be familiar with by watching um, films like Baywatch and and uh, versus uh, segmented uh, lifeguarding and life saving that we have in sort of this part of the world, um, meaning swimming between the flags as opposed to swimming everywhere. That's correct. Yeah. So having swimming between the flags with a lifeguard post between the flags versus uh, open beach lifeguarding where you will have a lifeguard tower every one hundred meters, no flags but just a lifeguard ready to respond. Um, I'm sure people have seen in the past films of like Baywatch and what have you and uh, uh, other films of particularly in the United States. Um, also in parts of Europe, um, they will have the open beach type lifeguarding, life-saving, and, but they only have one red and yellow flag and that's on the lifeguard post which says the lifeguard is on duty. Also, in some of the developing parts of the world is that I've seen uh, lifeguard on beaches at resorts, particularly in developing nations, and the red flag's been out. The red flag's been in the water to stop people going in the water because the lifeguard can't swim. Wow. And so that was their way of um, providing safety by stopping people from going into the water. But the people at the resorts were from other countries and they wanted to enjoy the aquatic recreation. And so uh, we've seen a change in some of those countries whereby the lifeguards are now trained, they're now using international standards of uh, flags and symbols, which is fantastic, and the resort change are now chains are now recognising the benefit of having qualified and trained lifeguards, uh, not just to respond to uh, rescues, but to actually educate the guests of those resorts on where is the safe place to swim, how do we enjoy the water. So the lifeguard is becoming not, to, sorry, is now more seen as a, a facilitator of good safety practices versus um, more a probably in the past a police type attitude to prevent or rescue. In Australia, we tell people where to swim. In the US, they tell them where not to swim. And over here, I guess, when we have shows like Bondi Rescue, which are a great educational tool internationally, but at the end of the day, my personal view is that. It, it may sensationalise the rescue part of life-saving when really the most important part of life-saving comes earlier in the chain, the education, the 
prevention, the um, skills. Do we do we see a movement towards the beginning of the chain more now with, like you were saying, the education side? In some areas, we are seeing the change where the lifeguard is the facilitator, the, the educator, as well as the skilled person able to respond to rescues. Um, but in some countries, we still see the lifeguard sitting in a car or sitting in a lifeguard tower. And that is good because you get the elevation in the lifeguard tower. But to also have a lifeguard at beach level, being able to intervene or stop the incident from happening. And so is it best to grab a board or a jet ski, a rescue watercraft or a, a, a inflatable rescue boat to go and rescue someone? Or is the prevention at the water's edge uh, a better approach? Uh, I'm sure it's a controversial discussion because you need more people on the beach to prevent. It's hard work. Prevention and education is hard work. It, yeah. It's tiring if you're in the sun all day, spending all your time talking to people. And and essentially, especially in countries like Australia and New Zealand, we don't like telling people not to do things. So it's easier to leave leave them and wait until they until they do get into trouble. I guess the sensationalism of of even the numbers of rescues you see and it may not be done on purpose, but even within the club scene, it's, you know, how many rescues did you do today? And that used to just really annoy me because I'm like, well, the best number would be zero because if you've done all your education, you've done your your, your training, your prevention, then people wouldn't get into trouble and need to be rescued. But then there's, that's all linked to funding and essentially if, we, if the lifeguard's doing their job, they're not, they don't have to get in the water. One of the challenges of the lifeguard, and I don't think some realise this, most do, but some, is that you don't know where that person is from. And so when I hear or see people saying, why is that person doing that? We need to take the approach as lifeguards and lifesavers that that person may not have been educated or have experience. An example is there's no water safety education or swim teaching in a lot of countries in the Asia-Pacific region, which is where I do a lot of my work with ILS. Um, And so they come to our country and they don't know about RIPs. They don't know about the red and yellow flags. They just see... The, the lovely beach, it's a hot day, they see the water. The natural instinct is, I want to cool down. We also forget that even in this country, we have people that are born in Outback Australia, born in Alice Springs, spend 10, 20 years in Alice Springs, never get to the coast, never get the education although a lot of surf life-saving and royal life-saving organisations are doing some great outback education programs now, which is fabulous. But as lifeguards, we don't know where that person was born. And so we need to take the uh, approach of 
this person doesn't know, how do I help inform them? Because if we don't take that approach, we don't have enough people as well to rescue everyone on all the 11,500 beaches in this country, which was another project I was um, involved with, which was the Australian Beach Safety and Management Program. Anyway, that's, that's history. For another day. Climate change. These days, it, it's, a, it's a big topic. Everyone's talking about it. Years ago, you were part of a project that looked at the effect of climate change on surf clubs. That was a pretty early look. Where are we at with that? Back in about 2011, 2010 and 11, we had a couple of big storms along the eastern coast. Uh, we get the east coast lows and the cyclones, and sometimes they meet in the middle. And so when I was working with Surf Life Saving Australia, I looked at that and it started to investigate the impacts of climate change. So back in that uh, year, 2011, we did a study on the impacts of climate change uh, or the potential impacts of climate change on surf lifesaving. We looked at the erosion of beaches and we looked at um, the sea level rise and we looked at what impact it was likely to have. And so with a company out of Western Australia, we did some really detailed research. And that, um, I think, from a, a coastal safety perspective, was probably the first major study into you know, the impacts back then. Climate change is, is generational. Yes, there are some uh, short-term observations, but it's a generational issue. And so it's not going to go away and it needs periodic assessment. I don't want to get involved in the human uh, impacts of climate change. There's lots of research into that at the moment. But for me, it's about how we as safety providers uh, respond to that change. As a result of some of that work in 2011, we have seen some surf life-saving clubs built or rebuilt back from the edge of the coast to allow for erosion. And I think that's a great response. But it's also uh, uh, loss of amenity. Uh, the eastern beach at Port Ferry in Victoria, at high tide, there's no beach anymore. And there's other parts of Australia where that happens as well. What does that mean to aquatic recreation? Where do people go to recreate along the coast when for a period of at least during daylight hours, probably there's three or four hours a day where there's no beach to rest upon. How do you get access to the beach when the ramps are washed away or the stairs are washed away and expose rock ledges and what have you? So I think it's, for me, it's up to the uh uh, organisations, the clubs, to work with local government and state government to work on recreational opportunities for the future. Plan now for a future response.
been involved in pool life-saving, coastal life-saving, but also sport. You talked about it earlier. Tell me about the, the future of international sport. Because at the moment, it really we've got the, the two halves. We have the pool component of the international life-saving competition and we have the ocean part. But really the, the Aussies and the Kiwis dominate the ocean events. Do we see a future where we start to even it up a little bit more? I, in my mind, I kind of feel like perhaps the future of international life-saving is more towards the life-saving type events rather than the sport events. But has there, has there been any talk about how we can even up the international competition so it isn't just New Zealand and Australia fighting it out at the top and then everyone else fighting for third? I personally haven't been involved uh, in any of those discussions, in certainly in recent years. But in the Asia-Pacific region, uh, um, you mentioned Australia and New Zealand. Um, they certainly are at the top, not just in the region, but um, in the world in terms of uh, World Life Saving Championships. But we also have those that are at the ground floor or trying to get involved. And there unfortunately are a lot of barriers that we need to look at if we are to try and uh, reduce some of the barriers to participation. For example, the cost of a ski is a full-time wage for one year in some of the countries. So if we wanted to get someone in some countries in Asia to be involved in the ski competition, it's just way out of their league unless they're someone donates a second-hand board, which is starting to happen. Even a rescue board, expensive. The fiberglass swim fins are two months' wages for someone in some of those countries. The rescue mannequin, uh, a rescue tube in, in one country I'm aware of is one month wage, just a basic rescue tube. And so it really is a very difficult question to answer uh, in terms of um, because there are always going to be these um, variations in uh, participation. I think there one answer is that there is different levels of participation with events such as you just raised before about um, low equipment events um, that uh, people can participate in. The Canadians, you talk about swimming pool competition, the Canadians introduced probably 15 years ago in their junior sport in the pool competitions, they introduced the tally games concept. Wonderful. And that is that a person in a swimming pool in Toronto can compete against a person in a swimming pool in Thunder Bay, which is a thousand kilometres away, or in Vancouver, um, or in Melbourne, Australia. All they have to do is register, compete in a swimming pool in their local community, against the competition rules that are circulated. They register their results on a iPhone app, goes into a central uh, system, 
And over a period of a month or so, people can compete without even leaving their own local community. So in swimming pool competition, absolutely fabulous. Thanks for your time, Norm. It's been fantastic to, to talk again. It's good to see you. May you go well. Andre, thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and meet with you. And um, I wish you well in your work as well. Thank you.